past week, I was thinking a lot about hospitality, friendship, and neighborliness. I think they are the things that have especially stood out to me over this last year. How much it's brought a smile to my face when I've arrived here at the church to find a, a fresh, fresh bunch of flowers in the sanctuary or a birthday sign here for me to enjoy during the recording of the service and then to take home afterwards. Or the help that has been offered when I needed a hand with a part of a service. Or the emails and, and texts to check to see how I was doing. All of these reminded me of the importance of friendship and hospitality. So today, I wanted to begin with a few similar examples that I found that I hope make you smile as they did for me. A student came to a teacher and asked him, Teacher, how many friends should I, a person have? One or a lot? Hmm, good question, the teacher answered. Go and pick an apple from the highest branch on the tree. The student looked up and said, But it's too high, teacher. I can't reach it. Ask a friend, maybe they'll help you, the teacher answered. The student called another student and stood on his shoulders. I still can't reach it, said the disappointed student. Don't you have more friends, the teacher smiled. The student asked more friends who started standing up on each other's shoulders and backs in an effort to build a human pyramid, but the apple was still too high up in the tree. Soon, the pyramid collapsed and the student wasn't able to pick the long four apple. Then the teacher called him back. So, did you understand how many friends a person needs? I did, teacher, the student said, rubbing his injured knee and back a lot. And together, we can solve any problem. Yes, the teacher answered, somewhat bemused. Of course, having a lot of friends is a good, but it's also important to have at least one who is smart enough to go and get a ladder. And let me also tell you what a middle school teacher shared about friendship. She asked her class to write an imaginative definitions of what a friend is. These were some of the more imaginative descriptions she received. A friend is a warm bedroll on a cold and frosty night. A friend is a mug of hot chocolate on a damp, cloudy day. A friend is a beautiful orchard in the middle of the desert. And a friend is a hot bath after you walked 20 miles on a dusty road. Being a disciple of Jesus meant embracing the idea of hospitality, not just about giving it, but accepting it. Accepting hospitality requires vulnerability and letting go. It requires giving up control and easing into risk, but it anticipates rejection at every turn and yet gives witness to God's love regardless. 
In the ancient world, hospitality, well, it was ingrained into the culture. That was, of course, because there were few, if any, restaurants or hotels along one's journey on the dusty roads of Palestine. Little travel would have been possible without the assumption and expectation of hospitality along the way. In today's reading from the Gospel of Mark, we are given two stories that might at first seem unrelated to each other, yet I believe they both, in their own way, have to do with hospitality. First, we see Jesus traveling from Capernaum into the hill country above the Sea of Galilee, heading home to Nazareth. Jesus was returning to his hometown after he had stilled a stormy sea, had been followed by crowds, healed a person tormented by demons, and a woman who had been sick for 12 years, and then brought a young girl who had been proclaimed dead to life. Now it was time to head back home, time to taste some of, of mom's home cooking. It was time to see how the kingdom of God might be received in more familiar territory. When he arrives in Nazareth, he encounters some resistance to his message. Jesus should have had a home field advantage to feel welcomed with open arms, but he didn't. Things start out well, but as soon as he starts teaching in the synagogue, people are amazed. But at the same time, they seem to think their hometown boy has gotten a bit too big for his britches. There is even a hint of scandal as the people of Nazareth question his authority. They ask, isn't this Mary's son? Instead of, isn't this Mary and Joseph's boy? You see, at that time and place, it was an insult to skip over naming the father as head of the household. It hints at the possibility that Jesus was an illegitimate child, bringing shame on him and his family. Shame and honor formed the foundation of social interaction in Nazareth. It was a zero-sum game. If someone gained honor in the community, that meant someone else had to lose. Keeping the balance between shame and honor, it was important. And here was Jesus claiming the honor of being a prophet for himself. This would upset the whole pecking order of social standing. It would mean that someone, probably the synagogue leaders, would have to lose honor. This young upstart needed to be put in his place and reminded that they knew who he was before he got famous because he was just a common builder, nothing more. Jesus has been busy, amazing people here and across the Sea of Galilee and even in the middle of the lake itself, but now it's his turn to be amazed. And what has Jesus shaking his head? It's the lack of faith he sees among his hometown friends and family. In fact, this lack of faith brings us to one more problematic verse in this passage. Jesus, the Son of God, is rendered powerless, Mark writes. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick and cured them. I read that 
biblical scholars have wrestled with that sentence and theologians have argued about it. Matthew's version cleans things up a little bit for us. Matthew says that Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith, making it sound more like Jesus chose not to work many wonders. But the question may not be about whether Jesus chose to do miracles or was prevented from doing them. Maybe the question is, how does our lack of faith affect the way God works? Do we really keep God out of the miracle business simply because we lack faith? Before we get too caught up in arguments about how much God's power and grace are dependent on anything we do, let's look at what happens in Nazareth. Jesus does heal a few. There are at least some who seek him out in faith, just as Jairus did on behalf of his dying daughter, just as the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years did. And I think this might be the key. Jesus responds when we ask for his help. He, he can't answer our prayers unless we pray them. He can only transform our lives to the extent that we allow him to or ask him to. Jesus' ability to do great things in Nazareth are only limited by the fact that so few bothered to ask because they didn't believe he was the Son of God except for a few, and they were healed. And this brings us to the second story about the faith of the disciples. The disciples who followed Jesus to Nazareth didn't abandon him when the town rejected his message. Well, they were watching closely to see what he would do. As Jesus kept on with his ministry of preaching the good news and healing the sick, casting out unclean spirits and giving hope to the poor, well, the disciples were learning what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. And in today's passage from Mark, Jesus gives some very specific directions to his disciples. He tells them what to take and what not to take with them on their journey. Other gospel accounts of the story are, are more specific than, that they shouldn't bring an extra shirt or their walking sticks or a money pouch or anything else. Mark, as he usually does, keeps it simple and direct. Bring nothing. Your faith is all you need. And he tells them, tells them not to be looking for a Holiday Inn or Motel 6s along the way but to stay at the homes of the people in the towns and eat what they provide for you. Hospitality is important here. Be present with the people is important. So accept the hospitality that is offered to you. Jesus knows that they will probably face rejection in at least some of the towns they visit. And if you're not treated with hospitality, well, don't make a scene. Just shake the dust off that place off your feet and move on to the next place, he tells them. If you can't win at home, maybe it's time for an away game. But even there, chances are good you're going to be challenged and face rejection. And with those instructions, they go. So off they went on their ministry, and their ministry is fruitful. 
No doubt they ran into some opposition from time to time, but they went out in faith and had many stories of success to share. You know, look around. And here we are, right where we should be the most comfortable. In our own home, our own neighborhood, our own Nazareth. Yet some of us, and some of the disciples, I'm sure, well, are feeling depleted. But Jesus is basically telling the disciples and telling us that this is exactly what discipleship is going to look like. This is what we are called into as well. To go out, to take a risk. There is no guarantee of hospitality, of warm welcoming in unexpected places. Reading passages like this one provides us with a great opportunity to reflect on the words of our biblical ancestors through the lens of our own place and time. One of the ways that life has dramatically shifted is the individualism of our own culture. The pride embedded in the phrase, I can do it by myself. Yet scripture is packed with examples of how our ancestors, the nomadic Israelites, the wandering rabbi, the traveling disciples, at times completely relied on strangers and were often dependent on the hospitality of others. Jesus sent the disciples out with nothing more than faith and the authority of the divine. Remember, he ordered them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no money, nothing else. And in this way, they had to expect and accept the hospitality of strangers. What a valuable set of rules for living today. We need to travel on our journey of faith like the disciples did. We need to depend on others and be prepared to be a support to others as well. We are always called to heal in many ways. Of course, not everyone has medical knowledge, but we all have the ability to listen, to, to touch, to comfort and encourage, to bring food to the hungry and offer kindness to the stranger. The demons of our world the negative influences and forces are on the news every day. We need to confront them on behalf of others who are suffering to be aware and in small ways involved in the repair of the spiritual and physical world. When it comes right down to it, we are called to proclaim the good news, not necessarily by doing a door-to-door -door sales pitch, but by the words and actions of our everyday lives. What do we stand for? How do we show it? What message do we give to our children and to those who are seeking a relationship with God? Those who are doubting or frightened, marginalized. I can tell you why, but it is said, and I will carry the good news, is our very beginning. That's right, I cannot tell you why but it is you and I who carry the good news in our very being. And it is us who have it to share with others. You know, some may listen and others may not, 
This is why it can be a heavy burden, but also a joyful responsibility. And it depends a lot, to a large extent, on receiving and giving hospitality. When we accept this, when we become aware, become aware of how practices of hospitality weave into our daily life, the life of being church, because they are there. They're all around us, all the time. And then ask, where have I experienced a sense of feeling stretched, overwhelmed, or depleted? As you go through the activities of your day, draw upon your faith and ask, is this truly nourishing? If not, can I shift what I am doing? And if I can't change what I'm doing, maybe can I shift my perspective? And maybe this example will help with this process for us. Imagine you had a bank account that received a deposit of $86,400 each morning. However, the account carries no balance from day to day. Every evening, it cancels out whatever part of the amount you have failed to use during the day. What would you do? You'd use every dollar in the account every day, wouldn't you? The thing is, we all have such a bank account. That's right, its name is time. Every morning, it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night, it writes it off as lost. Whatever time you have failed to use wisely is gone. It carries over no balance from day to day. Each day, the account starts fresh. Each night, it eliminates the unused time. If you fail to use the, daily, the day's deposits, it's your loss, and you can't spend it or appeal for it the next day. There's never any borrowing time. You can't take a loan out on your time or against someone else's. The time you have is the time you have, and that is that. Just as with money, you decide how you spend it. It is rarely the case of us not having enough time to do the most important things, but whether we really want to do them and where they fall in our priorities. And so maybe this week, you admit your own need for hospitality. Maybe this week, you walk through the doors that have been opened for you. Maybe you finally let go of your excuses about discomfort and how you don't have enough time or how, how unworthy you are. Maybe this week you truly give up control and self-imposed limitations and give in to what others, including God, want to do for you. Then go out, taking the power of God's love with you. Go out and take a risk on finding a radical welcome in an unanticipated place. But go out. Let us pray. O oh God, source of all beauty and goodness, 
Your grace comes fresh every morning. In each new day, you give us light. We praise you for your never-failing love that satisfies our needs and shows us the way to follow. We rejoice in your constant care, for you are faithful in love for all people. Amen. And now, as we go out, let us go out singing our closing hymn, We That Love. Let us sing together. 